Welcome to Breaking Through, the podcast that explores the breakthroughs teams are making every day at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm Madeline Bell, the hospital's president and CEO. Today's episode is part of my new Breaking Through mini-series, Women Leading the Way. In this mini-series, you'll meet some of CHOP's amazing women scientists and hear about the remarkable breakthroughs they're making. You'll also learn about an exciting group of programs at CHOP that we call Frontier Programs. We started the Frontier Programs initiative in 2015 to fast-track our scientists' most innovative ideas. Many of our Frontier Programs have made important breakthroughs, and my guests will share the stories behind some of these breakthroughs with you. My guest today is Dr. Diva DeLeon. Dr. DeLeon is Chief of the Division of Endocrinology and Diabetes at CHOP. She is also co-director of a frontier program that is focused on developing new treatments for a rare disease called congenital hyperinsulinism. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. DeLeon to Breaking Through. What inspired you to pursue a career in science? I think I was always a very curious child. There were no physicians in my family, although my mother was a pharmacist, so I guess in science. My father was a mechanic, so I think I was more attractive to understanding how things work and how to fix things. So my first path to science was engineering. I I thought I was going to be an engineer. And then when you were pursuing that path, what sort of made you deviate from engineering So I grew up in Panama, and I had a conversation with one of my professors that made it clear to me that was going to be very challenging as a woman to have a successful career as an engineer in Panama, because I thought that that was where I was going to be continuing my career. So I kind of reflected back of what I should do, and I switched back to medicine, and it was probably one of the best decisions I have made in my life. Very interesting that they told you you couldn't be an engineer, but you could be a physician. I suppose that, yeah, they were more, I think at the time, this was the late 80s, there were examples of successful physicians, women physicians in Panama, but there were not that many women engineers. So, yeah, you know, the path that you take sometimes something that felt very negative at the time to me because that's what I wanted to do turned out to be a good thing for me, I think. Yes, it did, and a good thing for us, I have to say. Did you have any role models or mentors along the way once you chose your path as a physician? I was very fortunate that I encountered great physicians. Some were my peers, some were immediately above me when I was in medical school and when I was doing my internship in Panama that were very inspiring. Particularly, I can remember a pediatric resident that really I have by the time decided I wanted to be a pediatrician. I was in the later years of of medical school. So this resident gave me opportunities to develop some new skills as a medical student that some of my peers did did not have the opportunity to develop. And I think that was important for me to see the path in front of me and to make me feel confident in my decision of becoming a pediatrician. And can you share any pearls of wisdom or advice that you got along the way in your career that have really helped you? 
think something that really helped me and it was something that I learned very early on in medical school was to always have a plan and systematically approach every step of the way to accomplish your goals. So I have followed that through and it has been very helpful. Every goal that I have, every objective that I have in front of me, I always kind of map out that plan of what's going to be the way of accomplishing that goal. And when one has to juggle so many different roles, as I do right now, I think having those plans becomes extremely important so you don't get lost on the busyness of the day of what is in front of you. And I think as we all know, plans and can go awry. And over your career, is there a challenge that you might want to share with us that you had to overcome? Perhaps an example of that is as I finished my training as a pediatric endocrinologist and was contemplating my research path, I had decided I was going to have a research career. I needed to figure out what that plan was going to be, what what the goals of my research were going to be. And I got a little confused on the way. There were so many different directions I could go. And at the end, what centered me back and helped me design that plan was thinking about the patients I care for and what were the needs for those patients. So I think that helped me then have a very clear idea of what I wanted to accomplish with my research, thinking about the needs that I was going to meet for those patients. How do you balance everything that you're doing? And maybe some tips that you might have for young women scientists who are seeking to have some better balance. I always think about what is important and what can be done by someone else. And I try to give those opportunities to others in my team of things that may be nice for them, a nice career opportunity and would help take things off my plate. I think having clear goals and having clear understanding of what the priorities are helps you move forward when you have so much to accomplish and so much that you have to deal every day. And also how, you know, integrate family. I'm a mother. I have two boys that are now in seven and nine grade. And I also have to think about them and how I'm going to meet their, their needs. And I like to have a flexible schedule. So that helps me. Sometimes if there is an afternoon game that I want to go and see, I work earlier or I work later. So I think you have to give yourself permission to be who you are in all aspects of your life to be able to feel satisfied with what you're doing. I think that's great advice. So let's get back to a little bit about your work and your research. Can you tell our listeners what is congenital hyperinsulinism? The pancreas is a very important organ that make a hormone called insulin. And insulin controls our blood sugar levels. And blood sugar is the main fuel for our brain. So in hyperinsulinism, there is a problem with the way the cells that make insulin function and they secrete too much insulin at inappropriate times. So 
is basically the opposite to diabetes. So in diabetes, your blood sugar is high because you do not produce enough insulin. In hyperinsulinism, your blood sugar is low because you produce too much insulin. What would happen to a child in the future if their hyperinsulinism was not treated? Because the brain needs glucose to function normally, in hyperinsulinism, the low glucose resulting from the dysregulated insulin secretion results in failure of brain function that in the short term can manifest with a seizure and even death, but in the long term can have consequences even if treated later. That initial insult from the low glucose levels can result in long-term neurodevelopmental consequences And indeed, up to 30 to 50% of patients with hyperinsulinism have long-term developmental consequences. This includes speech delays, motor delays, learning disabilities. Since it's not very common, what made you decide to get interested in treating and really looking for better ways to treat children with congenital hyperinsulinism? I was fortunate to be here at CHOP during my fellowship and to have a great mentor in Charlie Stanley, who really created the program here at CHOP and mentored me through my fellowship and my decision to follow those steps. Before I came to CHOP to do my fellowship, I don't think I knew much about hyperinsulinism. But once I did my training, and and I got to meet some of those patients and those families, it became clear to me that, one, there was a great career opportunity to follow the path of my mentor, but also there was an unmet need, and that perhaps I could help improve the treatment and the outcomes of those babies. And it's not common. Can you tell us how often children that are born might experience this and maybe how many patients come here a year with congenital hyperinsulinism? The genetics forms of hyperinsulinism are quite uncommon and they occur with an incidence of approximately 1 in 20,000 to 1 in 50,000 live births. That translates into about 80 new babies born in the United States every year with the genetic forms of hyperinsulinism. There's also an acquired form of hyperinsulinism that results from perinatal stress that is way more common. So about 1 in 1,200 babies can have this form of hyperinsulinism that is transient and results within the first few months of life, typically 2 to 3 months after birth, However, the consequences of this more common and transient form of hyperinsulinism can be as severe as the genetic forms. And at CHOP, we treat every year about 60 new cases. Most of them, you know, the patients that are referred to us from other states are those with the genetic and persistent forms. Here at, at our center, we care for patients that come from all over the United States and from abroad. So we have treated patients, I believe, for almost all the continents except Africa. And what do you actually do to treat them? Unfortunately, there's only one 
FDA-approved medication to treat hyperinsulinism. And about 60% of the patients that we manage at CHOP do not respond to that medication. For those that do not respond to disoxide, disoxide is the FDA-approved drug for, for treating hyperinsulinism. The treatment of choice then is surgery, which can be curative for those babies that have a focal form of the disease. For the ones that have a non-focal form of the disease, unfortunately, very frequently, we are left with the option of removing almost all of their pancreas to be able to control the hypoglycemia, which is what we have to do to prevent the ongoing potential for brain damage from hypoglycemia, but it's not a curative therapy and it has significant consequences for those babies because they will go on to have diabetes later on in life and pancreatic insufficiency. And can you tell us a story about a patient who's traveled to CHOP from around the country or maybe even around the world, something that might stick with you of a child that you treated? There was a case last year in the middle of the pandemic that we treated that was a great success story for us, but more importantly for that child. This was a child that was healthy at birth. There were not signals that there was anything wrong. And about 20 months of age, this girl started having episodes of lethargy and seizures. And for several months after that first presentation, she went on to have these frequent episodes without a diagnosis and without a treatment. Later on, before she turned three, the local physicians identified hypoglycemia as the cause of these symptoms, and they initiated treatment for what they determined was hyperinsulinism. But she did not respond to any of the therapies that were implemented. In the course of 10 months, around her third birthday, she had six hospitalizations for severe hypoglycemia. So finally, I think at the parents' insistence, she was referred to us. And when she came here, we removed all the treatments that she was receiving that were not effective. And we have a great multidisciplinary team where really the expertise among the members of these teams is incredible and unparalleled. So we when looking for the possibility of a insulin-producing lesion. At the time, we were not sure if we were going to find anything, but we did specialized imaging and found that she had an insulinoma, which is a tumor that produces insulin. So it was not a congenital hyperinsulinism case. This was an acquired insulin-producing tumor, which is incredibly rare at that age. But because we went that extra step looking for the rare and uncommon, we were able to find that tumor, remove it surgically, and she was cured. So that was an incredibly happy case that we have in the middle of the pandemic because she came from Florida at the time where there were so many restrictions for flying and for everything. But you know, it felt good to be able to send her back completely cure of her hypoglycemia. Well, that is a really terrific story. And I think it sort of encapsulates what's special here at CHOP, that children travel from all over the country, around the world for very unique treatments. 
like what you're doing with hyperinsulinism. So what type of questions are you trying to answer with the research that you're doing? When I thought about what my research program was going to be like, I thought about the unmet needs for this population of children with hyperinsulinism. In about 50% of the cases that of hyperinsulinism that we see, we are unable to identify the underlying genetic cause. So what the research program addresses are these unmet needs. In the lab, we are trying to identify the molecular mechanism of disease in this group of 50% of our patients where we don't know the cause because if we are able to identify the cause, we can then think more effectively about how to treat them. And the other part of the research is to help on the efforts to develop new therapies. And for that, we have multiple projects ongoing. In the lab, we are able to study the insulin-producing cells from the patients that undergo surgery. We bring those to the lab, isolate the cells, and study the mechanisms of insulin secretion directly on those cells. We also have multiple models of disease that help us identify potential new therapeutic targets for the condition. So in that process, we have identified multiple potential new ways of treating the condition. One of them we're able to validate in those in the lab and then uh, bring them all the way back to the patient. So we have performed proof-of-concept studies in clinical trials. Then we got the development of that new potential treatment to the point where we could partner with a biotech company to take it all the way. So that's an example of what the research program is set up to accomplish. In addition, we partner with other biotech companies that have ideas of new products that they want to apply to hyperinsulinism. So because we have those models in the lab, we can contribute to those efforts by validating the, the target that these companies had identified. Also, because we have a large clinical program and we see a large number of patients, we are a site for multiple clinical trials that are sponsored by industry to bring new treatments for our patients. It sounds very hopeful. I'm going to switch gears. As an endocrinologist, one of the things that you do is treat diabetes. And this is a very personal thing for me because one of my children, who's an adult now, has type 1 diabetes. And I'd really be interested in what excites you or what are you hopeful about the treatment of diabetes in the future and what are some of the things that we're working on here? There are so many exciting potential new developments for the treatment of diabetes that I think the future is very bright. One is in technology, the advances in technologies that in terms of continuous glucose monitors and insulin delivering pumps and the way those two pieces of technology can communicate to deliver insulin in a smart way is very exciting. We had the opportunity to partner with investigators that had developed a bihormonal bionic pancreas. This is a device that is completely independent in delivering not only insulin but also glucagon. To manage diabetes, glucagon is the other hormone that the pancreas produces and that together with insulin 
create a balance to maintain our glucose levels. So we brought that technology and did a trial actually for kids with hyperinsulinism that had developed diabetes after a pancreatectomy earlier in life. And the performance of those devices are incredible. They can do this so much better than we can ever do with our calculations of how much insulin. So I'm looking forward to that new generation of insulin pumps that will be automated and that would take the input from the user out of the equation and do it all automatically. In addition, there's so many developments in the efforts to create new beta cells, whether from other type of cells in the pancreas or from stem cells. So cell replacement therapy, I think, is a very promising new development for the future of the treatment of diabetes that would eventually benefit the kids with hyperinsulinism too, because if we can replace those defective cells with normal insulin-producing cells, it's going to benefit them as well. Well, that sounds really hopeful, especially for me as a mom of somebody with diabetes, something that has been a, a big part of our life. And I'm excited to hear that we are at CHOP working on new cures and treatments. Generally speaking, philanthropy is really important to our work here at CHOP. And I'm just wondering how that's been a differentiator for you and your research and your treatment. One of the projects in my lab that have been very important in our efforts to create new therapies was the project where we identified a new potential therapy and brought it from the laboratory to the patients. That was a very high-risk project to begin with because we really didn't have any assurance that that was going to be successful. So the only reason why we were able to carry on that project was because of philanthropy. It was philanthropy that supported the initial efforts for the studies that we did that got to the, the project to a point where we could then apply for federal funding to continue. So I think that's where philanthropy plays a key role in the research that we do, especially here at CHOP, because we take risky projects that have potential high payoff, but require that initial investment to be able to bring these ideas to fruition. I'm really glad you um, emphasize that, because by the time you can get external funding, you usually have to be pretty far down the road with an idea. So this is a way to really fuel early stage ideas that are higher risk, as you mentioned. When we say high risk, we don't mean putting our patients at risk. We say that maybe it's very uncertain that a certain path or treatment will work. I always like to close by asking my guests about their most important personal breakthrough in their career. So Dr. DeLeon, can you tell me What's your biggest breakthrough moment? I think my biggest breakthrough moment was when I decided that my career path was going to be to care for children with hyperinsulinism. I see that as a gift decisive moment for personally for my career, but also for the program at CHOP and for these patients the legacy at job from those that came before me 
I feel the obligation to carry it forward and currently building a new generation of physicians and investigators that continue to carry that on. And the reality is that the most important discoveries and the most important breakthroughs for hyperinsulinism had happened here at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So it's incredibly important that that program continues because I do think that we make a difference in the life of those children. That's great. That's all the time we have for today. Dr. DeLeon, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. To find out how you can be part of tomorrow's breakthroughs at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, please visit chop.edu giving. To learn more about how our teams are transforming the future of healthcare, please visit innovation.chop.edu. At CHOP, we make breakthroughs every day. I'm Madeline Bell. Thank you for listening.